Hello and welcome to episode 130 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alegi. And it's a great pleasure today to introduce my friend and colleague, Dr. Gerard Akindes, a leading figure in the growing field of African sports studies. His research interests include the political economy of sports broadcasting, athletic migration, sports development, and sports for development. He's currently teaching at Northwestern University, Qatar. He's a co-founder and spiritual chief of Sports Africa Network. And his publications include journal articles, book chapters, and two important edited volumes. The first, Identity and Nation in African Football, published by Palgrave in 2014 and co-edited with Chuka Onwumechili of Howard University. And Sports in Africa, Past and Present, published by Ohio University Press in 2020, co-edited with Tarmin Dekauer and Todd Cleveland. Dr. Kindus is a former international basketball player for Benin and has coached youth, women's, and men's basketball teams in Belgium. Welcome. Thank you, Professor Aligi. So let's begin by introducing you uh, and uh, sort of giving you the opportunity to tell us about yourself and your background uh, growing up in Benin. And, um, you know, a lot of West African youngsters grew up wanting to be the next Didier Drogba uh, or Sadio Mane, but uh, your first passion and, and maybe true passion is basketball. So tell us about uh, growing up in Benin and, and playing hoops there. Uh, um, I played basketball, I'll say more by uh, accident. It was a familial accident. I have two elder sisters who were playing basketball in for their schools and for clubs in Benin. Uh, I just used to follow them. I was the youngest, then I'll just follow them and go and slowly I started playing. I didn't decide to just play basketball like that. It was just, I just followed and started playing. I played a little bit of football uh, on the streets uh, in the neighborhood, played a little bit here and there, but it didn't, it didn't catch me much to continue playing football. And Simon was playing football with the older brother who you know, played football, who is part of the network as well. Uh, he was much more talented in football than I, I could have been. And um, then I played basketball. That's how I started playing basketball, school basketball, and then uh, club basketball, uh, national team. Yeah, that was the, the beginning. So you I were scouted went. in school uh, or while playing club? How did that work? How did you get picked for the national team? And what position did you play? Uh, as you, you, you know, I'm not that, uh, that tall. I'm barely six uh, feet tall. I say 5'10". I play point guard. Uh, but I was physically quite fit. I could dunk relatively easily. Uh, and that was, uh, at that time, it was really not common to have small size players dunking. Uh, we didn't have much we used to play in the school. 
the whole system in Africa, you play basketball, you play school sports. Uh, afternoon, after class, and mostly we have the school competitions. And we have categories. That's how we used to play. And there were two clubs in the city where I grew up, Porto Novo. Uh, we just go play uh, in a stadium where the, the basketball court was and join the club. And that's how we play. It was nothing really planned. Not, we were not recruited much. We just joined the club and the club we allowed to play. We play Saturdays uh, uh, during our holidays. And yeah, it's happened almost naturally. And you took your passion for basketball and, and your skills uh, elsewhere in West Africa and then even to Europe. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, I played national team in Benin. I, we had, I was privileged to have a few international competitions, a few tours, and I was captain of the team uh, very early. And looking back, I even don't know exactly how it, ha it happened. My uh, teammate just uh, decided to, uh, to select me as captain. Uh, and from Benin, I had to go continue school. It wasn't going on very well. I uh, couldn't finish my uh, high school with the back, the high school exam to go to university in Benin. And I decided to go to Togo to get the exam done earlier than I would have done if I had to wait for another year in Benin. And when I went to Togo, I met some players who I used to play against uh, during the international competition regionally. And I played season there with them. We played the African championship with a Malian team. We got, we got kicked out very early. And after my uh, the back, I decided to go to Cote d'Ivoire. Simon was in Cote d'Ivoire. I joined, I got in Cote d'Ivoire and went to play on the campus. Is this met in Abidjan? Guys. Abidjan, yeah. Abidjan. Met a few guys that I used to play against also in the region. And, uh, and they recruited me to play for Abidjan University Club. That was my, my choice because I wanted to go to school. And that was a, easier than going to a, another club locally. Uh, they, gave you, they gave me a room. It was a kind of scholarship. They gave you food, a car for uh, cafeteria, and a room for free. And that was my choice. And from uh, Abidjan, I finished four seasons with that club. And uh, my plan changed. I was in physics. That didn't go well either. I decided to stop school for a year. And I changed club to play for ASEC, ASEC basketball. Uh, Very famous club, of course, uh, in Abidjan, in, including a historic football club. Yes. And he was at that time also one of the top uh, clubs in, in basketball. Uh, and they, they pay, they pay some money to the players. We were playing almost full time. That was my choice to make a little bit money before I moved to Europe to go back to school. And Belgium was just the choice I had. The first 
France should have been a, a natural place to go because I knew people there, but I didn't want to stay beyond a year without uh, going back to school. And I got to a school in Belgium that I, I went to Belgium. That was uh, my decision. And in Belgium, Belgium was a bit harder, difficult to play uh, for many reasons. Europe has all these restrictions for citizenship. And right. uh, the Belgian one was probably the harshest because you couldn't play except the first league if you are not Belgian. Really? And in the first uh, division, they only had two non-Belgian players and most of them were American players, college players. Sure. And I didn't, yeah, I didn't play and I slowly entered the basketball uh, uh, world in Belgium through one of my, he was kind of godfather to me in basketball. He introduced me to some clubs. I practiced with some teams, some pro teams, some time to time and uh, played second team weekends. That was my basketball career. And then I started coaching. I did a lot of camps. And then I coaching, I coached my first team was a women's club. We went second division and the season didn't go well. And we dropped down in third division and I became the head coach and coached there for two years, two, three years. And uh, became assistant for a pro team. Uh, that was, I decided to leave. I needed to do something else. I couldn't see my life in... Uh, Coaching basketball, no. That must have been a, a, an interesting experience coming from West Africa and finding yourself coaching, I assume, mostly white Belgian women um, there, no? It's... It was a fascinating experience. Uh, yes, they were all white. I, I only had one my last season with the ladies. I had a, a young... Uh, her dad was from Congo, DRC, and her mom from Belgium. And I had her for many years in basketball camps. And then she played with my club for a year. She was 15, very talented player. She had a beautiful career in Belgium and France. She was player of the year many years, was drafted with WNBA. But it was a very special experience. She was quick. Youngest, uh, I wasn't a very fair coach because I protect her. Uh, but it was what it is. And coaching women is probably one of the greatest leadership experience I had uh, because they are white, they are Belgian. Age difference was very uh, big in the team. She was the youngest, 15 years old. The oldest was 40. Uh, wow. Yes, it was very interesting. And there's no locker room when you coach women. What means that you don't have the back end uh, reading of the dynamic of a team. Thing, things just blow up in your face time to time. You don't, yes, it's, it's a beautiful experience. Uh, and for me, it was uh, even a, a greatest experience because I came from Africa. I was used to another way of, Coaching, I had to learn. I did my coach. I didn't finish my license, but I did all the, the courses, everything. Uh, didn't do the last. Uh, I did some exams, but not the last uh, uh, part of the exam. 
the field exam. Yeah, it was my passion. I went to so many clinics. So I, I, I learned basketball really uh, deeply for, for many years. And so as a, an expert on African basketball, both in terms of your uh, playing career and also your coaching and your love for the game, I'm thinking of this um, new Basketball Africa League that was supposed to begin play in 2020, but unfortunately due to COVID-19 and, and the pandemic, it was postponed. Um, and when you and I last saw each other, it was in Dakar, where that beautiful brand new sort of NBA style indoor arena uh, was just about ready to open its doors to the local team, uh, IS Duan, uh, in the Basketball Africa League, the BAL. Um, what is the significance of this really historic professional sports venture in Africa, the BAL? And what do you see as its main opportunities and perhaps also challenges it's an interesting venture for me for africa it has a very it's very glamour to have a league like that it also has a significance in terms of pan-africanism it's an african league it's a african teams playing each other from different regions but from um, a development of the game it definitely provides a unique opportunity for some players who are not going to make it to European basketball or, or American basketball college or the NBA. That is sure that is, an, is a new door, is a new opportunity to play on the continent. Uh, this said, it's I still, I'm relatively ambivalent with, uh, The, risk, the impact the league will have first is the short league, it's a three-month league. The season is short. And then second, uh, building an elite top-notch league uh, designed like the NBA uh, with everything like the NBA, uh, what will be the impact on the reality of basketball on the continent? Knowing all the gaps, all the Uh, limitations that a lot of leagues and clubs and uh, governance, all these elements are not in place in general on the continent. How is this league going to function and have an impact on the way African basketball evolves? That's a big question. The, is the league going to uh, grow in terms of number of teams? And that's from the basketball perspective. The other uh, challenge for me it is traveling in Africa. It's not easy because it's expensive. It takes time. How are they going to manage the trips if you are in uh, Dakar and have to play in Rwanda? How long will it take for a, a club like that to, to, to travel and play? Yes, these are my reservations. And uh, from a political thinking, as uh, my reflection, not just from basketball, it's from what I had the opportunity to learn in, in sport in general uh, after my uh, journey through Africa and Europe. Pro sport, elite sport, it's very glamour, it's very attractive. But is it what Africa needs? We, we would like to have it. We would like to be like everybody else on the, in the world. 
But is it what we need? Do we not need to invest more in the infrastructure, human infrastructure mostly? And that's what that's my more my reflection on the on the battle. And the other thing is these clubs, I, I look at when they were formed, most of these clubs are relatively recent. They have a level of sustainability because they belong to the police, to the army, to this uh, relatively stable institution which have the capability to support them. But what about the rest of the basketball in these countries? That's, that's a question. Do they become just the, the team of the country? If that's the case, are they going to serve basketball? Because still the game is popular, is not established yet. And having a few clubs, a few people playing basketball, for me is not enough to grow the game really. Uh, those are excellent points. Now, even though you are a basketball man through and through, you have focused your intellectual work on football mainly as the king of sports on the African continent. And your U Ohio University PhD dissertation and all your publications that have looked in particular at uh, media and football in uh, Francophone West Africa. These are these are must reads for anyone interested in learning about the business of sports, not just in Africa, I would say, but globally. And uh, you've worked in Senegal and your research also on Cote d'Ivoire, Benin, Burkina Faso, Cameroon. And uh, in that early part of your work, you concluded that transnational football broadcasting was a prime example of what Thomas McPhail called electronic colonialism. Since then, how have changes in the African media landscape over the past few years affected this dynamic? I'm thinking here especially about the expanding internet access on the continent, mainly through mobile phones, but also the emergence of new private broadcasters and the like. It definitely has changed quite a bit. Uh, but the most recent work um, uh, done, I haven't finished it. It's something I'm writing in French for the first time for a, a, an edited book. It, it is showing me that it's a dynamic field that is changing, but I'm not convinced yet that the electoral colonialism is disappearing because when we look at broadcasting of sport on the continent, to be able to sell from a, a business perspective of a broadcaster, to be able to sell uh, your, your satellite subscription, you still have to have English Premier League. If you don't have English Premier League, you are not going anywhere. If you don't have uh, La Liga and Spanish League or Italian League or French League, the broadcaster is not appealing to be able to drive subscriptions. It's still the case. And uh, the latest things that I realized it's Supersport, which is the powerhouse for the English-speaking broadcasting of sports on the continent. Based in South Africa. Based in South Africa, yes. They used to have a little bit of uh, broadcasting of the local leagues, Zimbabwe, um, Zambia. They had Nigeria for some time, Ghana, uh, and a few other countries in Tanzania and Kenya. And then slowly they started redrawing from some of these leagues. And I had the opportunity to, to, uh, have, to interview one of their senior people in Nigeria. And he told me, in Africa, you have to 
bring everything to broadcast again. When you buy the right in Europe, they give you the feed. You don't have to do anything. You pay and you get the feed and you broadcast. In Africa, you have to do everything. And they are not convinced. Probably they have the numbers, have the figures that these leagues are bringing value to their business. And because of that, they are not investing heavily. And what they invest in Africa is really, it's not much really for what they, they pay for to have a English Premier League, for instance. But I realized that they just signed a contract with a Ethiopian league, what is very surprising. That's this is super sport? sport? Yes. Interesting. Uh, interesting. Yes. That is changing or is not changing. The European sport is football is still dominant and is still uh, capturing all the, the passion and uh, people who love football. They, that's what it's they love. They, they have less attention to their local football. But at the same time, there's some signs of changes. Uh, in um, the Chinese are on the, on the ground now with start times, they are pushing. And where super sport will leave the ground, the Chinese will try to capture the, the market. They got the right for the Ghanaian League, for instance. And they are, uh, Papa, who is part of our network, told me that they, and then I went after the information. Uh, they are showing the games on uh, a, an internet platform, what we call commonly today OTT. And people buy the game on demand. They just buy the game they want to watch. That's one initiative that is interesting. The Nigerian football, uh, professional football league also just launched their uh, NPFL uh, TV on the same principle. They show some games online and people buy it. The first statistic I saw about that uh, showing that most of their audience is the, the diaspora. Mm, very interesting uh, data. People everywhere, but not many Nigerians are watching the game locally. That's one initiative. The other in interesting one is uh, Ashanti Kotoko uh, signed a contract with uh, a Ashanti Kotoko, an emblematic club from Ghana, from sure. Kumasi. Great rivals yeah. of Hearts of Oak in Accra. Hearts of Oak. Yes, they signed a contract with a company, SIK, C E E K to show some of their games that are left open. The Champions League, African Champions League games left open by CAF, the preliminary games, to show them. And they are developing some content around the club. And they are also arguing with the, the, their, their FA to get more money from Super Time, Star Time's contract. But there's some changes. Basically, they be able to show games online, is providing new opportunities uh, for leagues. My question is, are they ready to really take advantage of this opportunity? Is it not going to reproduce what t satellite TV did? It means that the leagues are not good enough. They will provide a little bit of their content, but that space of internet uh, streaming will be slowly captured by the big corporation again to show the international football. And that's my, my fear. Because these African teams, clubs, leagues, themselves don't have the capacity 
to carry the production and the distribution of the of the game they have to rely on the third party most of the time in the us or the uk then the electronic colonialism is still somewhere because the value chain of broadcasting again doesn't sit in africa yet yeah those are sobering reflections on these very interesting changes that are taking place and i've learned so much from reading your work and uh, you know listening to uh, these these finds of yours and of papas and and others and this leads me to my next question about your uh, scholarly books that you've co-edited with uh, uh, dr Chili, dr Kao, dr cleveland I think one of the common features in these books, one is entitled Identity and Nation in African Football, focused very much on fandom and shifting identities there. And, and the other one, uh, Sports in Africa, Past and Present, focuses more on Southern Africa. Uh, nearly half of the chapters in that book are on Southern Africa, um, but also has a, sort of a different uh, focus and emphasis. But what brings them together is very much the fact that there are African scholars center stage in these collections. I'm thinking here, you know, um, of your own work, and we co-authored a piece in, in your 2014 volume on Paul Bunga Bunga, one of the very first great African professional footballers in Europe, uh, from Congo, DRC, to, to Belgium, even played against the great Real Madrid of uh, Di Stefano uh, in, in the what was then called the European Cup, now the Champions League. Uh, but you had the chapters by Wycliffe and Jororai and uh, Solomon Waliaula and Joseph Besolo Congo. Uh, you had uh, Monia Lacheb uh, from Tunisia, of course, Chugon Wumechiri's work, uh, Walter Nkui, uh, so many others, Manasse Chiweshe. I mean, th these, are, these are really wonderful platforms to bring out the importance of, you know, Africans producing knowledge on sports and, and on football, both uh, folks based on the continent and also in the diaspora. So how and why is it important to continue what you, I think, are a driving force in this effort to uh, diversify, if not decolonize, African sports studies? Uh, for me, it's very critical. Uh, first reason is the field of uh, African sport. It's uh, uh, totally under study. The production has increased. Remember, since we started trying to, to work on this out of our own passion for, for Africa and sport in general, and our first uh, early meeting in Boston, never forget that it was a very important moment of our journey. Uh, it was. We, yes. <laughs> Nearly 20 uh, years ago, Gerard. Yeah, that's no good. It's not making us look uh, younger. But, but uh, since then, I think the production has increased quite drastically. Uh, and it has increased from African uh, scholars, from European scholars, from uh, North American scholars. Uh, but at the same time, I think and I'm not satisfied by the contribution of African scholars in numbers. We have quality, we have... Uh, very pertinent uh, work, but there's still so much, so much, so much for African scholars to cover on the continent. And I'm not the historian, you are a historian. Uh, a little bit has been done with Soccerscape 
on African uh, history, football history. We have the one by Kembo Kembo and Diechi that give a very good uh, overview of the history of football on the continent. But when we move out of football, there's very little we know about African sports. Who play the sports from colonization till today? There's very little. We see results of African teams, but what happens beyond these uh, results? And the dynamic we see in football probably exists from different angles, different ways in other sports like handball, basketball, volleyball, uh, track and field. And there's a, a need, a need for me, there's an urgent need to, to capture more of that. When we, we talk about African sport, it, it is like, uh, it's almost urgent today because given the, the time, timeline of African sport, the modern sport brought by the Europeans, when it came on the continent, and many of these actors, early actors, have passed away and they left with their, their history, their archives of the early moment of the games. Uh, but many of them are still around and it's becoming almost, uh, it's, uh, almost an emergency to develop uh, quality history about African sport across the continent. My dream is to be able to, to launch a, a, almost a, a movement of African history uh, on capturing sports country by country, discipline by discipline, uh, listening, to, listening to the actors, recording them across the continent to rebuild the memories because a lot of players on the continent have no memory about what the sport has been or was before. To rebuild the memory of African sport is important because that memory will help the youngest player to understand that they didn't come from anywhere. They, they belong and they are the result of the investment of some people who have created and brought the game, built it, and they, they are just a legacy of many people. Yeah, that was this public publications. It's important that we continue this work. Yeah, those are inspiring words. I love to hear uh, your dream spoken out loud. And it's not just historians, of course. You've got one of the, the leading scholars of football on the continent is Solomon Waliaula. Yes. And, you know, he comes from a more of a literature background. And so, you know, his sensibility to you know, uh, the importance of language and culture to understanding the phenomenon of African uh, fandom and, and just African uh, soccer or football more broadly is just invaluable. You know, it's, it's the kind of thing that really only a person who uh, was born and grew up and, and you know, lives uh, there can really bring out in those very poetic and sometimes very subtle and contradictory ways. Outsiders like me, for example, are, are bound to miss uh, so much of, um, you know, that, that kind of meaning. And I think it also shows, you know, your, your edited volumes and also the network that we're going to talk about in a moment, the Sports Africa Network, how there's so many different disciplines in the social sciences, in the humanities, in communications, uh, in, even in physical education and so on, that can contribute 
to to this project. So you are a founder, and again, I, I see you very much as the, the the spiritual chief of the Sports Africa Network, as we're calling it these days, uh, which is now officially a coordinate organization of the United States African Studies Association. Can you briefly uh, tell our listeners about this group and how it has changed over time since that first uh, meeting in Boston in 2003 and first conference uh, at Ohio University and uh, maybe share with the listeners also how uh, being such a, a force in this group has also shaped who you are as a scholar and maybe even as a citizen. Uh, this uh, Sports Africa, we just, the short name is just Sport, we just say Sports Africa. I think you're the one who suggested this to, to me. I remember one of my visits on the phone. We used to be Sport in Africa, and we say Sport in Africa is too uh, limiting. It was limiting, and then we said, let's say just Sport Africa. Then we have Sport, we have Africa, we have the two main pieces. That's what matters. It's sports matters, and Africa matters. Uh, 2004, we started. I, I'm going back a little bit to my own uh, life in sport. Uh, when I came to the U.S., most of my experience uh, in sport was on the field. It was playing, it was coaching, it was my life. Uh, when I came to the U.S., I came with a clear intention to not be in basketball on the field anymore. That was, uh, I was done. I wanted to move on. And I had this opportunity to study uh, sport administration. But be, besides that, I was, I kept my interest in sports and uh, I started writing in my classes on sports. Uh, I remember a piece I wrote with uh, my PhD advisor, Steve Howard. Uh, it was a leadership class I wrote on uh, Phil Jackson and the Chicago Bulls uh, coach and I cited a book by Rod, uh, Dennis Rodman. And that was very, he said, Dennis Rodman, what is that? The combination but, of Steve Howard and Dennis Rodman is something that to hold on to. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But that was my, I, I was writing on sport because I was interested in it. And being at Ohio University gave me another opening intellectually on looking at sport differently. I came with a, I did sport administration with the intention to focus on uh, uh, elite sports. I was dreaming about something like the ball in Africa, uh, the basketball uh, uh, league today. But my thinking, my learning in uh, why studying mostly social sciences, history, sociology, anthropology, uh, led me to understand that sport cannot be limited to just a few people at the elite level. And this sport is much, is much bigger than that. It's much bigger. And when we started the sports uh, in Africa then, I was just trying to translate this desire of uh, the interdisciplinarity of sport into a project uh, that took shape. We wasn't sure, we didn't know where we were going, but we just started. And, uh, and because sport and Africa was 
always there was in the middle of whatever we were doing we tried to broaden it with new disciplines but interdisciplinarity was was important and it's important because we understood sports uh beyond just playing beyond just uh, competition we understood the value or the importance i'll say more the importance of sport in societies and what does it do how is it used how is it uh, does it fit according to what people want to do with it that really shaped my thinking which evolved slowly but strongly with time about how to what I, how i see sports uh and that was my uh my journey and the sport africa network it's uh it's continued to shape the way I, I view sport today because through the conferences the conferences were unique small group and some uh, discipline we didn't think about people will come and present i remember andrea looked at the uh, Andrea Frone at Ohio University, she presented on the artwork by FIFA, what we didn't know much about, we, we probably have seen it, but she looked at it from an art historian perspective. That is unique. Uh, we had another student who was in, uh, uh, in music, musicology, who analyzed the FIFA World Cup in South Africa music between um, Econ and the Pepsi and Coca-Cola. These are so original way of looking at African sport that uh, is refreshing, is enriching. So we cannot just ignore, or ignore all these things and just study sport with who score, which goal, when. That is, is important, but it's not enough. And the group is shaping more and more the way I see sport. And the way I would like people to, to, to value it because it's just part of people's life. And Solomon was another person who really, uh, I really listened to a conference, a media conference, when he was talking about this uh, broadcaster who on radio about uh, English Premier League in, in Swahili. These are unique pieces, and this is Africa. Uh, yeah, that's how. This uh, network is shaping, shaped, and continue to shape, to be shaping my uh, my thinking about sport, about Africa as well. And I think another way, maybe that uh, it has done so, and that you really brought to the table was bring the conferences to Africa, right? Because when we started, I was in Kentucky teaching, and you were in at Ohio University. We were creating this along with Martha Saavedra, of course, at Berkeley and uh, Simona Kindes uh, in Wisconsin. You know, we were creating this, you know, focused on Appalachia, or as they say, they're Appalachia. And, uh, you know, eventually after about a, a, what, a dozen conferences or so, uh, we finally made it to uh, the continent. We first went to Bloemfontein in uh, South Africa, then thanks to Igabo Chipande, uh, Lusaka in Zambia, uh, then we went with work uh, in Dakar uh, in 2019. We're heading back to South Africa, though only virtually uh, next year or, or next conference in 2021. So I think that's also really important that, you know, since we are working with uh, African sport and society, it doesn't really make sense to have conferences always 
overseas. And that has brought in new scholars uh, from the continent, from multiple disciplines. So it's, it's really um, a testament to your dream, your original dream that we uh, came on board with. Uh, any final words? Because we're just about out of time, uh, Gerard, that you'd like to conclude with. The teamwork is, is beautiful on this journey. The camaraderie, the intellectual stimulation, the discussion, the long evenings after the conference, that's probably the, the most interesting part of the conferences. Uh, yes, it has been so far a beautiful journey. And uh, I won't say I have completed a 360 uh, tour in sport yet, but I'm getting closer. Uh, I can see sport from so many angles now. And that's what matters. And I also see Africa from many angles. And sport has been a, a major, a major lens for me to, to look at the continent and to meet the valued and, and quality people across the world. And I thank really everybody who have been uh, along my journey in, in talking, presenting, writing about sports and the support I got all along. And Peter, you are a valuable teammate. Thank you, Gerard. It's, uh, as you said, been a wonderful journey that we're still on. And, uh, you know, I would encourage folks to visit the sportinafrica.org website to learn more about the organization and the conferences that are, have taken place and that are planned. There are also other resources, ways to connect to specialists in multiple African countries as well as uh, around the world. And uh, I'd like to thank you, Gerard, for... Uh, speaking to Africa past and present. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me. Africa past and present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical support is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. You can stream and download all episodes on our website, afropod.aodl.org. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. To get in touch, send email to alegi, that's A-L-E-G-I, at msu.edu. Thanks for listening.